This is an ABC podcast. Today, it's all about the joy of bees. Honeybees, that is. Helen Jukes lives in the UK, and Helen was introduced to honeybees by a beekeeping friend. There's been a quiet upsurge in urban beekeeping in Britain, and Helen was fascinated by those swarming, industrious, gorgeous little creatures that have the capacity to sting and to make honey. Shortly afterwards, Helen moved to Oxford and found herself stuck in a stressful, unpleasant job that didn't seem to amount to much. And so Helen set up her own hive in the bottom of her garden. And there was something about the act of keeping bees, all that close observation of their secret world inside the hive, and the potential for fresh honey at the end of the season, that skewed Helen's view of the world a little and opened her up to new possibilities in life and in love as well. Helen has written a really lovely book that's called A Honey Bee Heart Has Five Openings. Hello, Helen. Hi. Who introduced you to this secret world of urban beekeeping that I had no idea about until I read your book? (laughs) It was my friend Luke Dixon who I met through another friend and at the time that I met him, I'd just moved to London and he was keeping bees all across the city. I think he had 50 hives at that what? time. That sounds mad to me. Yeah, yeah. I've never lived in a city as crowded as London. And the idea that people are keeping secret beehives around a place is really interesting to me. How is this done? Where do they keep, tend to keep these urban beehives? Yeah, I mean, once you start realising that these hives are about in the city, you sort of get a different sense of space, I think. There were hives high up on rooftops. I remember standing on one, if you know Oxford Street in London, Mm. one of the busiest shopping streets. I was maybe 20 stories up, standing on a rooftop, looking down at thousands of shoppers like ants below. And I was up there with a beekeeping suit and a hive. And Luke had had hives in all kinds of places, on rooftops, in hidden community gardens, in wildflower gardens. Um, sometimes they were public spaces, sometimes they were kind of hidden hidden spaces. So I heard about him through, through a friend and asked for an introduction and um, he took me to see a hive for the first time. And I remember there being a point that afternoon of my realising um, that this thing that I imagined was going to be quite fun and cool suddenly uh, turned and seemed um, a lot more frightening and scary. Frightening? Why? Why? What do you mean? Did you have the suit on? Or? I had the suit on and Luke had just lifted up the lid and I suddenly realised these are insects um, and there are thousands of them. So a hive in summer will have around... As many as 70,000 bees inside. Wow, 70,000? Yeah, and so when you lift up a lid, they all start seething out. And um, Are they angry when they're, they're, they're surging out like that? It depends. There are different colonies have very different personalities. So, um, I mean, Luke's were very were very calm and, and I, I kind of I got to know them and they, were, um, they weren't angry. But I guess when you're... When you're opening up a hive, you're disturbing the bees' home. So there's, there are what's known as um, guard bees in a colony. They would have different roles and the guard bees will 
be out trying to defend themselves. Because there is something a bit intimate about the inside of a beehive. Like it, to, mm. to, to suddenly open it up and pull out a rack just seems to me like a bit like akin to, I don't know, running into a changing room while everyone's getting dressed or something like that, just bursting in all of a sudden and uh, yeah. disturbing everyone. And- yeah, there's definitely a sense of kind of being somewhere that maybe you shouldn't be. And, and because of that, I think it made me very aware as a beekeeper and... And aware of my movements as well, I became much more aware of my body when I was opening up a beehive because you have to be very careful to be slow and careful. If you make a loud sound or if you move too fast, then the bees are unsettled straight away. They're very sensitive to movement. When you opened, when, yeah. when he opened that hive and you had a look in for the first time, was it like a little alien world you were peering into at the time? They are so strange bees. Yeah, the honeybees are so odd, especially because there are so many of them because they function I mean you can think of a bee as an individual but you can also think of honeybees as a super organism as a kind of entity in, in a, as a colony and because of that that sort of in-betweenness of them it's it's quite difficult to know what you're looking at when, yeah because i noticed you just said it. earlier that the, that the colony depends on the personality of the colony yeah exactly that's an interesting thing i thought so we're not talking about yeah. individual bees having a personality but a colony might have a temperament or a or a personality yeah yeah i think the colony definitely functions as a single entity and yet yet it's full of individuals and people have done um, experiments and found that even individual bees have have particular temperaments so so i mean it sounds like terrible anthropomorphism but Mm. um be different individual bees have been shown to be sort of lazier or harder working. Really? Right. Yeah. Right. You yeah. can have slack bees and, and, and exactly. industrious bees. Yeah. So uh, tell me a bit about the honeybee itself. Honeybees very different from bumblebees or other kind of bees that are fly around. Yeah. So honeybees, I mean, there are 200,000 species of bee in the world. Oh, I think I'm right really? in saying wow. that. In the UK, we have 250. Um, and honeybees are particular in that they live together as a colony so as, as we've just said that there's this sort of sense of their them living as a community um and other other species do that but they so a bumblebee for example will reduce right down to the queen will be the the bee that bumblebee survives through the winter um Honeybees obviously make honey also. Mm. Um, and what's the and honey for? What, what do they make the honey yeah, for? Yeah, they make, it's their winter food supply. So honeybees will work to create as much honey as they can through summer um, in order to feed themselves through winter because the whole colony will, will live through the winter. So when we're taking honey from them, we're also taking their winter food supply. So you can't take is, too much if you want them to survive? Yeah, well... well um, some beekeepers will will take quite a bit and then feed them on on a supplement, so so sugar fondant or um, syrup through the winter. That seems um, unkind. That doesn't y- seem yeah, right. Yeah, it's does funny, it? isn't it? It does put it puts mm. quite a different um, lens on taking honey mm-hmm. when you realise oh. It's their food supply. Well. Yeah, you go eat some cat biscuits instead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, how is honey made? How do they make the honey? Um, so they collect um, nectar from flowers. And how do they? They got the. Did they have a? a, a I don't know. A, what is it? A proboscis yes, sorry, or a nose should, or a yeah, needle exactly. or something? How do they get, yeah, get yeah, it yeah. out of the flower? They have a, a curling tongue called a proboscis that they will um, 
uh, used to suck nectar from inside the flower um, and they suck it into a kind of temporary stomach a honey stomach um, where it mixes with um, enzymes and then they carry it back into the hive um, and on re-entering the hive a, a worker bee this is a um, the females in the colony will regurgitate the nectar um, and pass it on to another another um, worker who will suck some of the moisture off suck it up again and then regurgitate it again and pass it on to another worker and so and this process is passed through the whole colony it's called it's a process called trophallaxis and it's it's basically a process of communal digestion almost wow and so you so you're saying they extract this nectar and then bring it back to the hive and then cough it up and consume it cough it up and consume it and back and forward like that it does sound vaguely disgusting but 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 honey is being made through this process what's the difference between the honey and the nectar then yeah good question so honey is like really condensed nectar uh, nectar. Oh. So they're, they're drawing. They've drawn a lot of moisture off. So for us to call it honey, it has to. I forget what the moisture content is, but it has to have been condensed to a certain point. And once the yeah. once the honey is ready for whatever they want to use it for, what do they do with it then? Then they um, pack it into a honeycomb cell and um, cover it with a thin layer of wax, um, and then just store it. And honey is amazingly because it has uh, antibacterial properties and. And it means that they can store it for a really long time. Yeah. I've, I wonder if this is true, but I've, I've had a story that you can sometimes, uh, archaeologists have found ancient, like little jars of honey, and it's still edible. Yeah, after, I've from had the that too. World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it keeps out the bacteria that well. So, Helen, you moved to Oxford from London shortly yes. after this. Yeah, yeah. What drew you to Oxford in the first place? I, well, I had been moving around a lot. I moved and lived in lots of different parts of London and then I'd moved down, moved down to Brighton and um, had worked a series of quite short-term temporary contracts. And oh, this is the gig economy, is it, that you were in? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and was offered a um, permanent job in Oxford and moved there on a bit of a whim, really. Um, and on arriving, thought, oh, I'm living... I was just living in a rented terraced house in sort of inner city Oxford, but had a garden for the first time. Um, and knowing that I was in a more permanent position made me think, oh, I'm now able to be a keeper, a beekeeper for the first time. Um, and what happened when you uttered that thought out loud at work? Like, oh, I might become a beekeeper. Yeah, didn't, I think people didn't really... Uh, didn't really think it was a very sensible idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to put myself in their shoes. I suppose if one of my colleagues said, I shall become a beekeeper, I go, oh, that's, that, that's lovely, I suppose, but that's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess it's quite an odd thing to want to do, especially when your, um, your day job is, is uh, working in an office and quite computery. It's yeah, and like I said at the start, you weren't very happy in this job at all. Was, it, was, it, was, was the unhappiness in the job sort of making, uh, manifesting itself physically within you? Were you a bit knotted up? Yeah, I, might, I mean, I guess there were... There were things about the job that I found really tricky that I was struggling to make sense of at the time, really. Um, there were, I guess, things about an office environment that I think I found really tricky um, and, and felt blocked in a way. 
Um, well, it's, as you say that, I mean, these days we all work in cubicles. Yeah. But it's a bit like a kind of a honeycomb cell, I suppose. In yeah. Its own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the difference between a, an office cell and a honeycomb cell, I suppose, is that. Um, the bee doesn't live in the honeycomb cell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the bees, mm. I guess the bees have this amazing. I think what I came to really appreciate about a honeybee colony is that they have this amazing system of signalling and communication all the time. So they spend most of their lives in the dark, but there's this amazing sense of um, messages being passed back and forth all the time. Whereas actually, in in my job at the office, I felt quite, um, I guess, quite alone in some ways. I mean, it was funny getting to write, writing the book and trying to trying to find a language for what I was feeling about work and about urban life. Um, and I didn't find it a very easy thing to do. I think maybe we're, in some ways, we're um, still lacking a language. Our lives have changed so much in the last 30 or 50 years. And maybe we're still lacking a language for what's, what kind of effects that's had on our minds and our bodies and our ways of relating to each other. And so I think that was very much in my mind when I was trying to describe it and trying to look for ways to um, put into words the feelings in my body and the, and the feelings in myself. Um, and I think I, I ended up kind of maybe um, maybe being drawn towards the weird, the peculiarity of the office context. So like the weird spinny, like why do we sit on the, those spinny chairs that go round and round and round? Yeah, like the one I'm sitting on right now. Yeah, and me as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and these fluorescent light bulbs that all give us headaches. And it wasn't a good fit. So tell me, Helen, how your friends ganged up on you to get you a your first colony of bees. Yeah. Well, I suppose I must have been, um, I must have been going on about the idea of wanting a hive. Um, but there's, there's a big difference between talking about it and actually doing it. Um, and I think I probably got a bit of a shock when at Christmas that year in Oxford, um, I opened a card to find um, that a group of my friends, many of whom didn't actually know each other, had somehow all got in touch with each other <laughs> and put money together to buy me, to gift me a colony of honeybees. A hive of friends got you a colony a of A hive bees. of friends, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, A hive mind of friends got together and <laughs> yeah. communicated what was clearly going on. They seemed to know you better than yourself in that yeah, way, Yeah, exactly, and then there was no going back. <laughs> <laughs> so then you get, that, so that means you have to buy yourself an actual, a hive itself, yes. the, the structure it, itself. What kind of a th what kind of a thing did you did you order? What kind of a hive did you order for yourself? Yeah, so I I guess the the one that we um, a kind of go to image for a hive is the one that looks a bit like a, a wooden house, mm. um, a, a sort of box shape with a, Pitch a triangle roof. Yeah, roof. yeah mm. exactly. Um, I I got a top bar hive, which is different from that. Um, they're sometimes called Kenyan top bar hives. They look like barbecues. Those hives, That's, don't they? Yeah, no one's yeah. ever said that. It would be an Australian that mm -hmm. said that, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. <laughs> It looks like a barbecue. Man. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of think of it as a boat on stilts, so or a manger or something. It's it's um, yeah, like a, <laughs> traditionally it, it was a log on its side, um, and uh, it, it's hollow hollow inside with a, a roof on top, um, and along the top you have a series of top bars, um, and the idea with a top bar hive is that um, rather than bees building their honeycomb inside human-made frames. They're allowed to, we allow them to follow their own processes of comb formation. So they build straight down from the top bars. Now, you were worried whether you'd actually be able to do this. To, yes. You could actually <laughs> handle the responsibility. Why were you worried about yeah, that? Yeah, um, 
I guess I certainly, as an adult, had had few experiences of keeping anything really. I'd moved a lot between jobs, um, moved between friendship groups, moved between different people and places, and um, it felt like a real um, challenge to me to think about um, staying with something. I think we live in a culture where we can um, become very um, wedded to the idea of temporariness. Um, and in a way, yeah, the idea of trying, trying permanence is, is um, scary and exciting at the same time. Our lives are so different to our grandparents and, and, and so yeah, going back further. Totally. Many of whom would never leave the, the city that they may have grown up yeah, in. Yeah, totally. And to me it felt, it felt kind of radical really to think of, of um, yeah, of just staying with something and, and finding out what, that, what would happen if I did. <laughs> Tell me the story of how your friend Charlotte, the zoologist, showed up at your door one day with a strange bottle. <laughs> Can you explain what was in that bottle? Please? Yeah. Um, Charlotte had just got back from... Uh, well, she's an anthropologist turned zoologist. Um, and she had just got back from a research trip, I think, to Japan, um, where she'd made a bottle of Hornet whiskey. What is Hornet whiskey? Yeah, that's... <laughs> I knew that was going to be your next question. So I think you buy some local whiskey and then you catch live hornets and put them inside. <laughs> and as they die and drown in the liquid, they release their venom. And this and this liquid is supposed to have amazing healing properties. Now I healing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I admit, um, most of that bottle is still sitting on my really uh, yeah. right. You went game to try, try too much of I it. I tried a tiny bit, but um, I mean, it's so amazing. I kind of like it. Just it still has those hornets swilling around in it. Right. And are you supposed to consume the hornet like the like the worm in uh, tequila? <laughs> are you supposed to actually consume I, that? I, definitely, I'm not going to. <laughs> so when you say healing, I'm putting inverted commas around that. Is it going to have hallucinogenic properties? I wonder too. If it's got a kind of a venom in it, you, you may think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't know. It's very definitely um, very <laughs> potent. I can tell you that. <laughs> so spring spring came. That year, spring yes. came and it was time to pick up your bees. Tell me about the man you picked up your bees from. Yeah, um, I, I drove out. My friend Luke came from London and, and we rent, rented a car and drove out to a, a honey farm, which is right on the edge of um, Oxford, where a guy named Victor lived with his wife Lucy and they had been keeping bees for a while there and they sold honey and they they also sold nukes which are like a small a small colony which, and and I picked up one when he showed you the bees what did they what did they look like oh um i mean it was amazing to see my own colony for the first time he, he i remember we were it was quite a hot day and we were standing outside and um he opened up the box um and i just had this real sense that oh this is the this is the colony that I'm going to take home and that are going to be mine. And that was such a strange moment. Um, he, I mean, he's an amazing guy. He sort of jokes that, that him, and, him and bees come from the same family because um, his family have been keeping bees for so long. And actually his wife had a very strong um, allergy to bees, she later told me, that after they got married she developed, she developed a, um, 
analogy so strong that if she got a sting, it would kill her. And right. she's, she's since had to go into this sort of therapy to um, <laughs> to cure herself of the allergy. So yeah, that, I mean, they're an amazing couple. <laughs> so, so, so once you once you brought them home and put them in your your hive, how lovely was it to watch these little bees start floating out of the hive and going looking for nectar? Yeah, I mean, I think the first few weeks were were quite anxious <laughs> I'd love to say that they arrived and that I just really enjoyed watching them but actually I was terrified that they um that they wouldn't survive because it was quite a small colony that I brought to the hive and there's a, a period after after you've um put them into a new hive when they have to start producing they they have to build wax and they have to start laying eggs and um, raising young in order for the colony to sustain itself. Um, so I knew we were on a bit of a, um, a time clock. And so I was quite worried. I guess I was quite anxious the first few weeks. Yeah. I, I discovered from your book that bee sex happens in the air. Can you explain <laughs> this process, please, as, as best you understand it? I'm just astonished by this. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there are three different kinds of bees in a hive there's the drone bee which is the male that's the male right that's the male yeah um there's a queen bee who's the only fertile bee only fertile female in the whole colony and she will lay all the eggs for all these thousands of bees in the colony she just lays eggs all of her life um and then there are the worker bees who raise who do all the work inside the hive that's their female too aren't they they? are also females there are females yeah yeah. feminist theorists will draw a lot from uh this distribution (laughs) of roles here won't they (laughs) i i I think it's vaguely insulting just quietly the men are called the drones I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> women do all the work and there's a queen bee, essentially. <laughs> and, and so when it's time to mate, there's this kind yeah. of what, there's a swarm in the air or something? So not long after um, after a queen bee hatches, um, she will leave the hive normally on a sort of balmy, warm summer afternoon and she'll fly up. Um, into the air and find what's known as a drone congregation zone, which is um, a cloud, really, of flying male drones. <laughs> so on this ca- on this kind of balmy summer afternoon, all the drones from an area, all different hives, will fly up and congregate um, in this place. Well, in a cloud, like a cloud of a, a cloud. Apparently, of, I've a, never seen right, one, and they're, okay. they're almost. I mean, people beekeepers talk about them almost as sort of mythical places but that, i mean they're not they're very real places there's there's like a, a rumor that there's one above crystal palace in london wow so, um, th- so there's this cloud of bees drones exactly and and and, and a queen or many and queens a, coming, coming a to num- this a number of vir- yeah a virgin queen will cut will um fly up into this drone congregation zone and on reaching it she'll release a particular pheromone that alerts the males to the fact that she's arrived um and so then they seek her out to mate with her. Well, thousands of drones I, I at mean, the same time. You have to, if you're a drone, you just have to take your chances. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so she then mates with as many males as she can through wow. the afternoon, filling herself up with enough sperm to, I mean, she might make a couple of these virgin flights, but she'll fill herself up with enough sperm to last the rest of her life because she'll, she'll go on uh, laying eggs after that. But yeah, I mean the the bad news for the drones is that um on mating they will um 
the the act of copulation between Queen and a uh, drone. Does it kill them? It kills them. Really? Yeah, their genitals and l- sort of lower abdomen are ripped. What out snaps in off? The does it? Ooh, yeah. snaps off, rips off. I suppose yeah. it's like a bee sting in a way, like like a bee sting would. I, I suppose. Yeah, and I guess. Yeah, 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 I guess so. Yeah. Um, uh, so right. yeah, so drones have this amazing, I guess, experience, and and then fall <laughs> to their go, death. And they go, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's it. It's all over for them. Is, and then yeah. after that, the queen comes back to the hive. What now that she's newly impregnated? Exactly. Yeah. So she might make a couple of these nuptial flights, um, but then will will um, be the egg laying the egg laying bee in the colony, and will lay thousands a day. Right. Yeah. Is that the one time she ever gets to fly? I wonder. Yeah. She. If the colony swarms, then she will leave the hive. Then, but otherwise, otherwise, yeah, she will just be inside for the rest of her life. Once that happens, once the bee queen bee is back in the hive, then she distributes what larvae? Is that what she does inside the little honeycombs? Uh, she lays yeah. eggs, and then they grow up inside the honeycomb, do they? And and, and that's and become bees again. Exactly. listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. The title of your book, Honey Be Hard has five openings. Five? I didn't, look, I didn't even know a bee could have a heart. They're pretty small to begin with. It's kind of amazing. They've got this little mechanism called a heart inside of them. Do they have blood as well? Yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember squishing insects when mm. I was a kid and seeing this yellow, weird yellow substance. That's the blood? Out. The yellow gunk it's is the, the blood? Ye- it's the blood, yeah. It kind of looks a bit like snot. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's just swimming around inside of them is, is it, as, as they're going about their business. Tell me about the life of these worker bees, which are female. Mm. What, what kind of roles does the worker bee have? Yeah, when a worker bee f- is first hatched, when it first comes out of the comb, it will go through a series of stages through its life. So worker bees basically do everything inside the hive. They feed other bees, they clean the cells, there are undertaker worker bees that pull out um, dead bees to sort of protect the hive from disease and stuff. So actually worker bees spend most of their lives in the pitch dark, in, in the pitch black, they only leave the hive right at the end of their life to become foragers. They do this thing called a little waggle dance. And how does that work? Yeah, they're, they're amazing. I mean, honeybees are so sensitive and, and have a completely different sensory makeup to us, really. And I guess partly because it's dark inside the hive, they're relying on different senses. Um, so they have an amazingly strong sense of smell and touch is also really important to them. They don't have ears, but they have ways of um, hearing through their knees and with their antennae. They have knees. <laughs> yeah. There is a bee's knees, that's a thing. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So they, they have like organs in, their, in the backs of their knees that um, sense vibrations coming up through the comb. And oh. this waggle dance that is, is sort, sort of, notorious isn't it as a as a like the bees language is like literally a dance that goes on on the honeycomb when a forager wants to communicate to other 
foragers about the location of a particular food source. So if a forager goes out and it finds a particularly delicious lavender pollen or lavender nectar, then it will come back to the hive and dance, dance this dance that um, scientists have decoded. I mean, it's amazing when, when you sort of hear the, the coding of it. So, and, and there can be that specific, this waggle dance that yeah. can say, hey, girls, I found a really lovely lavender bush over here. Yeah. So, so the dance happens. The bee will stand on the comb. I'm, I'm making hand actions to you and I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm remembering, oh, people can't see this. It's on the radio. <laughs> so the bee will dance and the, the angle of the bee's body in relation to gravity will communicate to other bees the angle of the pollen source in direction to the sun. And the duration of the dance will inform them of the distance that they need to travel to get to this lavender bush. Good God, it's that detailed. It's not like follow me. It's, it's like this. Really, it's this close and this is where it is. Yeah, it's really wow. precise. So even after one dance, another forager would be able to go out and find this lavender bush. And it gets even more amazing when you realise that foragers will actually adjust their energy with which they do this dance to communicate how good a pollen or nectar source is. So if, so this uh, lavender bush, they would dance really energetically about it. But if they found, say, I'm trying to think, what well, a, a kind of slightly tired rosemary bush, then they would dance with less uh, with less urgency, I guess. And so, so this this waggle dance con- conveys information about proximity, yeah. uh, quality, yeah. and direction. Yeah, like and then also things. they'll also pa- pass little uh, samples of the um, nectar to other workers, so that so that the workers know what they're looking for. Yeah. So once you'd installed your colony of bees in your hive, uh, you kind of have to leave them alone for a while, don't you? In, in the colder spring months. When it was time to have a look in, mm. in the spring proper, what was it like to open the hive and see how they were getting on? Yeah, I mean, it changed so much from week to week. There were, early on, there were weeks when I opened it up and not much had happened and there wasn't much comb built and um, and I would kind of close it again thinking, oh, I hope they're going to be okay. And then, I mean, it's an amazing thing to watch a colony growing and as as summer got into swing the the comb really began i mean the colony began growing really fast and i would pick the pick the bars up and look at the comb each week and it would have grown massively you mean like little rows and rows and rows of hexagons mm, yeah little exactly hexagons of the yeah honeycomb, yeah i and mean they build that themselves in this yeah. hexagonal shape which is it seems like it's artificial i could i it sounds it just sounds really naive i just for some silly reason assume that those hexagons were human made because they're so mathematically precise yeah. but they're actually made by bees yeah is there something about the shape of the hexagon that really suits uh, what they need to do? Yeah, bees create the the hex, the, or they create the the cell, the comb cell, um, by they uh, pull out wax from from glands in their bodies, and then form kind of cocoons of wax around themselves. So the the a single cell kind of is shaped in the body of a bee that they then draw in to make the hexagonal shape, and the honeycomb structure is an amazing example of, I mean, it's incredibly strong and yet really light. So it's an amazingly kind of efficient use of material, I guess, and of, of resources. It was around about this time you met a man that you called 
the psychic. <laughs> Tell me how you met the psychic. I was introduced to the psychic um, by a friend and met him in London. I think I was house-sitting for a friend. And what were you told about him? Oh, I was told that he was a beekeeper. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, um, which was probably the first thing I found, found out about him when I met him was that actually he wasn't a beekeeper. He wasn't the beekeeper No, which was quite awkward. And, and how did you get on anyway, despite not him, him not being a beekeeper? Yeah, yeah, really well. I guess it, it was one of um, many quite strange meetings that happened that year. Through the course of getting getting the bees and be- becoming a keeper of a colony, I sort of found myself in many unexpected situations um, and, and got pulled more into other people's lives as well, I think. I think I'd imagined that in getting a hive, I would, I would sort of have this escape and I would be alone and, um, and I quite liked that idea. And actually, um, the experience of it was very different. It, it, was a lo- it was a lot more about meeting other people than I, I think I'd expected once you once you I, lo- I love this this story of how you you made lunch for him or made, made some food for him and, I, and this is actually the most english sentence in the world i think you you said <laughs> oh, no. you, you wrote we eat roasted squash stirred up with some spinach and pasta and a few other things that i find in the fridge it is not especially nice but it is a bit nice <laughs> oh because it's nice <laughs> <laughs> just a bit nice i like that why, why why did you call him the psychic oh I think probably I ended up calling him that more because there was a something very sensitive and very um, aware about him. And in a way, I think learning about the colony had brought a lot of things up for me about communication and listening and attention, I suppose. Were you finding you were seeing the world a little differently? Yeah, massively so. In what way? I remember my friend Luke, when I started beekeeping, told me that when he started beekeeping, he began seeing blue more. Um, Bees' eyesight covers a different part of the colour spectrum from us, so they, they don't have red, but they see more blue and they see ultraviolet as well. And he said that as a result of that, he started noticing blues. And, and I think in a similar way, I, my sense of the world shifted a little bit that year. Maybe I noticed blues, but I think I also noticed other things as well and noticed, I think, more wild spaces in the city and had a sense of uh, creature life in, in um, an urban environment that I had been missing before. And I think... I mean, I became quite obsessed with um, bee anatomy and um, bees' sensory experience. But um, in a way, becoming so close to another creature that was so different from me and that was so had such different sensory faculties to me turned yeah. mine upside down or around a bit. You say they kind of occupy a bit of an in-between space, bees, mm. and they're hard to categorise. Yeah. How, how, how does that work? So, I mean, this was something that I found through the course of the whole year, really, that each time I, in my very human way, <laughs> tried, to, tried to fix them and put them into a category, they seemed to escape it or um, slip out of it or, or just not fit. So... Yeah, the ancients had a lot of problems with that too. Like yeah. you, you wrote about Aristotle, who couldn't quite place their their sex. You know, well, the, are they females if they're yeah. doing all the work? And uh, and are the males, who's male and who's female and who's what? Yeah. Is so are they? Mm. Yeah, yeah. There were there were stories of people not knowing if they're male or female, and not know 
knowing if they're wild or domestic and I mean it's still a question do we think of honey as an animal product or is it plant-based and are they individuals or are they a hive exactly yeah and I think in in all these ways they escape escape our attempts to pin them down and that can be quite disconcerting at first but also I think it can be quite freeing in a way and quite um I don't know, I came, I came to really like it, where I think at first I'd found it a bit unsettling. All kinds of claims are made for honey as a, as a medicinal product. I'm not quite sure, but what I can tell, there's no real scientific evidence to back that up. I'm, I'm sure they're very, it's, it's quite soothing when you have a cold and all that. But there does seem to be some evidence to say that honey is useful for dressing wounds. What do you know yeah. about that, Helen? Yeah, um, so there's this story about soldiers in the Balkan War. Um, this was written about by Claire Preston, who wrote a book called Bee, um, which, I, which I read a lot. And during the Second Balkan War, I think it was the Bulgarian army ran out of medical supplies. Um, and they were really, I mean, they, they were at their wits' end. There were still wounded soldiers coming in, and, and yet there were no medicines for people to use. And someone thought at some point, to try honey as a wound dressing and, and started using it on, on the soldiers. Because um, they have any antibacterial properties. It has antibacterials, yeah. but there's also another quality to honey that it stays liquid over time. So, so as it was working with this kind of antiseptic quality, um, it also wasn't hardening, so it was um, staying liquid with the skin as it healed. So it was actually a really good idea whoever that was in the Bulgarian army. <laughs> when it came to the end of summer, you left the hive alone for a whole month, the whole month of August, yeah. which must have driven you a bit crazy, not <laughs> wanting to, to begin there. And then it came time to open up to see the honey, the full harvest of honey. How much honey was there? Oh, yeah, it was an amazing um, moment, actually. A friend of mine had, had said, leave it completely through August. That's quite a normal thing to do, that you let the bees concentrate on what they want to do they want to make honey all of the time so just step let back and let, mm. let them get on with it exactly and so I really had no I no sense of what to expect but we opened the hive and there was heavy heavy big combs full of it and we just we I mean we took a little we didn't take very much I think I had five jars that year. How, do you, how did you harvest it? Well, <laughs> it's tricky. With the top bar hive, it's not so simple. Um, with the um, conventional hives, which are the sort of house-shaped ones, you can put them in a, what's known as an extractor, which is basically a big um, sort of spinning machine. You, you spin it round and the honey flies out. But with a top bar hive, you, so, you sort of slice off the bits of honeycomb and then strain it through a sieve and it's a lot more messy. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds really messy. <laughs> yeah. So was there this like honey trickling down all over There's you? honey and, everywhere. Right, yeah. everywhere. Does it smell fantastic when you're doing that? Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. Yeah, like, like quite flowers. heady in a way. Yeah, there's like flowers mm, that smells Very like. sweet. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. now this, the honey you would have been harvesting would have been quite different from the kind of honey we're buying off the shelf in a, in a supermarket. Like, the, it, 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 I don't, I don't, it would it be le- less acidic? I don't know. Is, mm. is it, was it better than the kind of, or, or no different from the honey I'm, I'm buying? I mean, I guess every honey is totally different. So Luke, for example, in London would find that even with two hives that were a mile of, from each other, 
the honey would be totally different. It just it and and honey taken at one time of year and another in the same place would be completely different. It really just depends on what kind of flowers are around at the time. So who did you give the honey to? <laughs> yeah, I well, I mean, I kept a jar for myself, obviously, for our house. But I was it really even about eating honey at the end of it? Oh, I do really like honey. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, yeah, I gave I gave quite a few jars away. I guess there were so many people that year that had sort of helped and informed the process that it felt nice to be able to give something back to people. So I made very small jars and gave, and gave them out. Yeah. What's happened to your hive? Is it oh. still alive? Yeah, well, the hive is still going. The hive's still in Oxford. I mean, the colony, I suppose. The colony, yeah, the colony has not fared so well. So I left maybe six months after after the that season, and I thought the bees were good, but they you you don't have this over here, but um, we have a big problem with varroa in the UK. It's a um, tiny red mite, a tiny parasite that since we started transporting bees across large distances has spread pretty much worldwide. I think Australia is maybe one of the last countries not not to have a problem with varroa. So they got infected with this parasite? Yeah, so most hives in the UK will have varroa in a small amount and in a healthy hive the bees will manage the the problem for themselves, they'll just pick it off each other. But there, in some cases, the um, the number of parasites becomes so much that the bees don't manage to control the problem, and they contract the viruses through it. Um, and so, eventually, my colony did did suffer and did die. Yeah, I, oh. I did that break your heart. Oh, it was awful. Yeah, it was really sad. What does it mean? You got a whole lot of dead bees at the bottom of the hive? Is that what happens? Yeah, a, a colony, a oh. colony will, will will die. Yeah, it was really difficult to hear after after I left and I spent quite a long time trying to work out what what had happened and we tried different treatments with varroa there's there's a sort of more chemical treatment that you can use and there's also a more natural treatment where you sort of sprinkle icing sugar over bees and they they lick the the idea is that you sprinkle the icing sugar off and it prompts the bees to lick each other and then they they well, clean the, each other do they? yeah exactly right. and they then they lick the parasite pull the parasites off and and we, we did try, ev- I mean, we tried everything, but the, the parasite was really strong. So. so now you've moved to near somewhere near the Welsh border. Yes. Uh, do you have bees there? Yeah, I have been. We're about to move house, so I've passed them on um, about a month ago. But I have been keeping bees in a different hive, actually, a rose hive I've had. The, the first colony you had was given to you. Can you mm. capture a colony, though? Can you can you capture a colony of bees in the wild? Is that possible? Um, well, there aren't many wild... I, I mean, I guess there are feral colonies, but there aren't many w- true wild honeybee colonies left, certainly in the UK. A friend told me recently there are some in Epping Forest in London. But yeah, not many wild honeybee colonies. But there are what what's known as swarm collectors. So there's swarming season every summer where colonies that are expanding rapidly will split and half of them will leave. So around, I think it's June, maybe a bit later, in areas where there are swarming bees, you might see a swarm, I mean, hanging from a lamppost or 
sitting on a car bumper or something. Yeah, and there was one that appeared in a hot dog stand in New York City the other yeah, day. Yeah, okay, and it, and yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And created kind of mass panic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's an incredibly eerie sight in the middle of a city. And so this is why we have designated swarm collectors, which I always think of as like ghostbusters. You call them up <laughs> and they come with a big suit and a, and a bucket and, and um, collect the swarm. Yeah. yeah, You might be aware that you know in recent uh, days there's been a, a bit of a uh, controversy about uh, industrial bee production mm. in, in this country. What do you think about that idea of uh, the problems with industrial bee uh, honey production and the idea of purity in honey? Mm. Yeah, so there's been a story the last couple of days that some imported honey has... Been proper honey. Not been proper mm. honey, is co- contains corn syrup mm. or, or other sort of other non-honey products. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of the articles are using the word purity connected with honey, which makes me wonder how how aware we are about the honey that does come from our hives and and how pure how pure as a substance it is. I mean, just to give an example, 75% of honey worldwide now contains at least one neonicotinoid, which is this particular kind of pesticide which has scientific i mean it's very controversial but scientific tests have shown that it's harmful to bees i think it's three billionths of a gram would kill a honeybee there have been other studies that have shown glyphosate which is a different kind of pesticide and that has been linked to there's just been a very controversial case in america with monsanto and that has linked glyphosate to cancer in humans this is in many of many honeys as well and honey was honey from china i think in the uk was banned for a couple of years between 2013 and 14 because it contained such a high level of antibiotics that had been used to treat bees so i think there's a there's a need for awareness at the moment that our products from the natural world are very linked to our lives and our it's it's difficult to make clear boundaries. Maybe it comes back to that idea of categories. It's difficult to make clear boundaries between um, humans and the natural world. And we're very involved in the natural world and we've affected it maybe more than we realise. It's been lovely to speak with you, Helen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Australia is full of girls who dare to do things differently. Adventurous girls. Girls with guts and spirit. You know what they are? They're fierce. When Kath Rusker's dad told her white people would never recognise Aboriginal culture, she hoped he was wrong. Let no one say the past is dead. The past is all about us and within. She became a famous poet, using her pen as a weapon to fight for Indigenous rights. Her words took her all the way to Parliament House where she demanded the Prime Minister do more to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. But something didn't feel quite right. Kath signed her name. That's an English identity, she thought. She changed it to Aboriginal language. Ujuru, meaning paperback, and Nunakul, the name of her tribe. Ujuru moved back to her island home, Minjeraba, 
and figured out the best way to make sure her culture was always remembered. She taught it to children, black and white. To our fathers' fathers, the pain, the sorrow. To our children's children, the glad tomorrow. Fierce Girls. Listen for free on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.